Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode in our podcasts about fiction writing. This is Jim Thayer. How can we get inspired? Maybe we are stuck coming up with a plot, or maybe we can't figure out our next scene. Maybe we detect that some humor or romance or action is needed. Where can we get the idea for these scenes? How how can we motivate ourselves to do the work of being creative? And in my experience, being creative is work. At least, I need to be sitting at my desk, not watching TV or feeding the cat or using a bleach pen on, on the ice cream stain on my pants. What can we do to rattle loose some good plot thoughts from our brains? How can we get our brains going? My favorite and most productive way to try to be more creative is to read an astonishingly good and innovative novel. This subject was brought to my mind the other day when I picked up Philip Roth's 1969 novel, Portnoy's Complaint. Reading the first 30 pages, I laughed out loud and shook my head in wonderment. How can Roth write about this stuff, and with such humor and insight? The novel, so far, is an entirely self-referential examination of the perils of being an overly hormonal, under-informed, smart-alecky 14-year-old. Roth's insight, his examination of the boy's life as he deals with his new urges and his parents and life in general, are, are laugh-out-loud funny. I thought, wow, is Roth ever good? And he's so inventive in his deep look at his protagonist, Alex. If he can do it, it can indeed be done. Roth reaches far and succeeds. If he can do it, maybe I can do it. His crazy inventiveness might be a good marker for me. Maybe creativity is infectious. So this is what I do when I want to knock some plot ideas loose. I find an inventive and creative book, and I enjoy it. Some other novels that have had that effect on me. I hadn't read any urban fantasy until I picked up Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Not the graphic novel, but the fully written version. I just couldn't believe how good it was and how Gaiman had created this fantastical, original world. How in the world can he create this magical place under London with these fabulous and unforgettable characters? This creativity, he's done it. The novel shows that uber-creativity is possible. I felt the same way reading Delia Owen's Where the Crawdads Sing. What a world and what a hero she's created. If she can be so good at this, maybe we can too. Not not only is the novel a wonderful story, it's a lesson and prompt on being creative. Science fiction can often do the same thing, nudge creativity. Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama had that effect on me. How can Clark come up with this? How did he build Rama? Clark had unleashed creativity. Maybe some of it will rub off on me.
or a Harry Potter novel? How in the world did J.K. Rowling come up with this wonderful stuff? There's a ton of creativity in each of her novels, and so there's a lot of creativity out there just floating around for us. She grabs some, and so can we. Or The Wonderful Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. You think you've been to a circus? You haven't been to this one. It's one thing after another, springing from Bradbury's imagination. Or Gene Shepard's Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters, which is the funniest book I've ever read. Shepard examines a young man's life with such honesty and humor. Or Charles Dickens's Great Expectation, my favorite classic novel. Dickens has one darn thing after another happened to Pip. And he does the same to Oliver Twist and David Copperfield and Nicholas Nickleby. One thing, usually a bad thing, after another. Dickens compresses life and shows us the magnificent possibilities of, of thick and wild stories. When I read one of his novels, I'm energized about writing. If he can do it, well, no, I can't do it like he can, but his intense creativity is a lesson. He lays out the possibilities. He creates and creates and creates. Maybe we can too. So if we're stuck on a plot or a plot point, pick up an inventive novel. Watch how other writers are doing it. Watch how they let it loose. Some of it will rub off on us. You don't know what novel to pick up? Um, consider this. Think back over the last three, four, or five years. What's the favorite novel you read in that time? Your favorite. Something in that novel grabbed you and held you, and a likely component of that novel's magic for you was the author's inventiveness. Consider reacquainting yourself with it, with that novel. It may be an electric spark for your creativity. Please allow me a moment of self-promotion. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham is now available at Amazon. It's there for e-readers such as the Kindle, and soon it'll be in the print version and an audio version. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one. The novel is the story of famous Charles Dickens characters taking place when they were younger than in his novels. So we meet the pickpocket Fagin and the thumper Bill Sykes when, from Oliver Twist when they were younger, and the crazy Miss Havisham and the unstoppable lawyer Jaggers from Great Expectations when they were younger, and police inspector Bucket from Bleak House, the evil Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. I loved Charles Dickens' novels when I was young, and in Fagin and Miss Havisham, I mixed them all together earlier in their lives to see what happens. Please consider getting a copy of my new novel. You'll see the techniques we talk about in these episodes in action, at least the best I can do with them, and it'd be much appreciated. Here are some thoughts about writing with a partner. Some writing partnerships have worked wonderfully. Ellery Queen, quote, the single most important figure of the golden age of American mystery, 
which ran from the 1930s through the 1950s, according to S.T. Karnak in the National Review. Ellery Queen was a pair of Manhattan advertising men, cousins Frederick Danae and Manfred B. Lee. The 39 Ellery Queen novels have sold more than a hundred million copies. Larry Niven and Jerry Parnell, individually terrific writers, they have a partnership uh, and uh, resulted in The Moat in God's Eye, a fabulous sci-fi novel. Two first-rate writers, Stephen King and Peter Straub, wrote The Talisman and Black House. Some partnerships work, and they have several advantages. First, you and your partner can prompt you to get going. And one of you may have strengths the other lacks, and vice versa. Maybe one of you is a great plotter, and the other is a great sentence-by-sentence writer. But consider being cautious about writing with a partner for a couple reasons. One of you may do most of the work and begrudge it. And one of you likely will be a better writer than the other and may begrudge that. Orson Scott Card, the sci-fi novelist, uh, says, It might seem that having two writers work on the same story would divide the work in half. But many collaborators report that it's more like twice the work. That's because in a true collaboration, both writers have to agree on everything. It can mean endless rewrites and painful compromises. It can mean having to put your name on a story that includes things that seem hopelessly wrong to you. This is Orson Scott Card. Yet it can also result in some of the best work of your career, if you and your collaborator can produce, together, something beyond the ability of either one of you alone. After all, the great works of film and theater, dance and music, are usually collaborations of writer, director, choreographer, composer, and many performers who together create what no one of them could possibly produce alone. Is it surprising that sometimes collaboration in fiction can have good results? Orson Scott Card continues, Before you enter into collaboration, however, make sure you have agreed on, on certain key points. Either of you should have the right to withdraw from the collaboration at any point, but then which of you will have the right to continue alone? Do both of you have to give consent for any publication of the work? In the rush of creativity, raising these questions might feel as awkward as, as handing our spouse-to-be a prenuptial agreement on the morning of the wedding. But it must be done, or there's a possibility of real rancor. That's Orson Scott Card in his book, How to Write Science Fiction and Fantasy. Well, here's a prime example of the differences between two writers, one male and one female, and this is offered by an English professor, Professor Miller, at Southern Methodist University, SMU, at an in-class assignment. Here is what Professor Miller told his students to set up the partnerships. This is Professor Miller. Today we will experiment with a new form called the tandem story.
The process is simple. Each person will pair off with the person sitting to his or her immediate right. One of you will then write the first paragraph of a short story. The partner will read the first paragraph and then add another paragraph to the story. The first person will then add a third paragraph, and so on back and forth. Remember to reread what has been written each time in order to keep the story coherent. The story is over when both agree a conclusion has been reached. That's Professor Miller. And this story was turned in by two of his English students. One male, one female. The female wrote, At first, Lori couldn't decide which kind of tea she wanted. The chamomile, which used to be her favorite for lazy evenings at home, now reminded her too much of Carl, who once said in happier times that he liked chamomile. But she felt she must now, at all costs, keep her mind off Carl. His possessiveness was suffocating, and if she thought about him too much, her asthma started acting up again. So chamomile was out of the question. Well, that was the female's paragraph. She hands the paper to the male, and this is what he writes, adding to her story. Meanwhile, Advanced Sergeant Carl Harris, leader of the attack squadron now in orbit over Skylon 4, had more important things to think about than the neurosis of an air-headed asthmatic bimbo <laughs> named Lori with whom he had spent one sweaty night over a year ago. A.S. Harris to Geostation 17, he said into his transgalactic communicator. Polar orbit established no sign of resistance so far. But before he could sign off, a bluish particle beam flashed out of nowhere and blasted a hole through his ship's cargo bay. The jolt from the direct hit sent him flying out of his seat and across the cockpit. So now the male hands the story back to the girl, and she writes, He bumped his head and died almost immediately but not before he felt one last pang of regret for psychically brutalizing the one woman who had ever had feelings for him. Soon afterwards, Earth stopped its pointless hostilities toward the peaceful farmers of Skylon 4. Congress passes law permanently abolishing war and space travel, Lori read in her newspaper one morning. The news simultaneously excited her and bored her. She stared out the window, dreaming of her youth when the days had passed unhurriedly and carefree, with no newspapers to read, no television to distract her from her sense of innocent wonder at all the beautiful things around her. Why must one lose one's innocence to become a woman, she pondered wistfully. She passes the story back to the guy who writes, Little did she know, but she had less than ten seconds to live. Thousands of miles above the city, the Anudrian mothership launched the first of its lithium fusion missiles. The dim-witted, <laughs> dim wimpy peaceniks who pushed the unilateral aerospace disarmament treaty through Congress had left Earth's a defenseless target for the hostile alien empires who were determined to destroy the human race. He gives it to the girl who writes... This is absurd. I refuse to continue this mockery of literature. My writing partner is a violent, chauvinistic, semi-literate adolescent. 
He, she passes the paper to him, and he writes, Yeah? Well, you're a self-centered, tedious neurotic whose attempts at writing are the literary equivalent of Valium. She writes, ass. He writes, loser. And that is where the tandem story ends, according to SMU professor Miller. So yeah, there are risks in writing with a partner, and that's one of them. I want to return for a moment to a small subject we talked about in an earlier episode. I suggested that generally we writers should avoid trying to replicate an accent or a dialect in our writing using, uh, we should avoid using uh, apostrophes and and uh, stops and weird spellings. Uh, usually the reader finds these uh, intrusive. And I suggested that we write something like she had a southern accent and then uh, have her dialogue spelled and uh, punctuated normally. But sometimes accents and dialects written out uh, by the author work. And that's because I think the author's so good. Here's an example from John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. I'm going to read it as he wrote it, and I hope I get uh, his accent correct uh, as he wrote it. Muley continued, Well, sir, it's a funny thing. Something went and happened to me when they told me I had to get off the place. Fust, I was going to go in and kill a whole flock of people. Then all my folks all went away out west. And I got wondering around, just walking around, never went far, slept where I was. I was going to sleep here tonight. That's why I come. I tell myself I'm looking after things so when all the folks come back, it'll be all right. But I knowed that wa'n't true. There ain't nothing to look after. The folks ain't never coming back. I'm just wandering around like a damn old graveyard ghost. That's John Steinbeck. He he spells wrongly a number of words. He drops the G's and substitutes an apostrophe all the time. He uses uh, wrong um uh, wrong grammar such as I knowed, and he misspells some words want instead of wasn't. But it seems to work, doesn't it? You, we can hear this fellow from the country, and he sounds like he should sound. Charles Dickens does the same thing in Oliver Twist. Here's a few sentences of dialogue from the awful chimney sweep Gamfield who's trying to convince the orphanage board to apprentice Oliver Twist to him. That's a cause they dampened the straw afore they lit it in the chimney to make em come down again, said Gamfield. That's all smoke and no blaze, whereas smoke ain't a no use at all in making a boy come down, for it only sins him to sleep, and that's what he likes. Boys is wary obstinate and wary lazy. Gentlemen 
and there's nothing like a good hot blaze to make em come down with a run. It's humane, too, gentlemen, a-cause even if they've stuck in the chimney, roasting their feet makes em struggle to hextricate themselves. <laughs> That's Charles Dickens and Oliver Twist, and isn't that wonderful? Don't you just end up hating Gamfield? Should we attempt something like this? I don't, I don't think so. If you aren't Dickens or Steinbeck, I think readers find it tiresome. But sometimes it works even in a modern novel. The novel Addie Prey by Joe David Brown was made into a movie called Paper Moon. I hope you saw it. It's a terrific movie. Tatum O'Neill won an Oscar for her Best Supporting Actress, and she was 11 years old, the youngest person ever to win an Oscar. Her father, in real life, Ryan O'Neill, played the lead, a southern con man, and Tatum played his daughter, who helps him with the con. Here is uh, the author uh, uh, replicating, I think, a southern country accent. Deputy Hardin settled back, and his voice was almost pleasant. Course, I can hardly overlook the fact you're a bootlegger long as you got a mess of whiskey hid away. Reckon you're gonna have to tell me whar it's stashed. Bo and meal run out thar and pour it out. At way my conscience won't bother me none. Longboy said, there ain't no whiskey. Deputy Hardin's face turned mean. I know different, he said. Longboy said, I'm telling you, there ain't no whiskey. I told your brother. Deputy Hardin reared back in pretended surprise. My brother? Now what the Sam Hill my brother got to do with this? He raised his voice. You hear me, Bo? I try and help this here man, and he drags my family in on it. He looked at Longboy, and his eyes grew so mean I thought he was about to explode. But after a while, he turned away and said, Suit yourself, boy. It's your funeral. That's dialogue from Joe David Brown's novel, Addie Prey, and I think he does a good job of relaying uh, the accents of this uh, uh, southern uh, country gentleman. We should be aware, though, that this is hard to do, and sometimes readers find it bothersome. Let me suggest again that the easiest way uh, to do a, an accent is to say something like, he had a Scottish accent, and then spell out and punctuate the dialogue as you would anything else. Let's return for a moment to a, a subject I like. And it's the use of the stronger word when we're writing. One strong verb usually creates a more vivid image than a weaker verb modified with an adverb. Often when a writer wants to describe a character's action, the writer uses the first verb that comes to mind, something like this, Jennifer swallowed her food. But the writer thinks about it more and, and discovers that this image isn't exactly right because her character Jennifer wants to eat fast and so she can meet so she can meet her boyfriend at the football game. So instead of coming up with a stronger verb than swallowed, the writer simply adds a modifier. Jennifer quickly 
swallowed her food. The image would be stronger were the writer to use a bolder verb rather than a weaker verb modified with an adverb. Jennifer bolted her food. Bolted is a strong, it's a great verb, and it's much stronger than quickly swallowed. Here's a couple more examples. There must be millions of them, but use the word sprint or dash instead of run fast, where run, of course, is a verb and fast is the adverb. Run fast isn't as strong as sprint or dash. Instead of hold tightly, try squeeze. Instead of touched lightly, where, of course, touched is the verb and lightly is the adverb, try pat. Instead of drank quickly, try slurped or gulped. Instead of fell quickly, try plunged. Instead of walked jerkily, try limped. Instead of talked confusingly, use babbled. Called is a verb and loudly is an adverb. Called loudly, it's not as strong as yelled. Sounded mournfully, doesn't sound too bad, but groaned is stronger. Laughed shrilly, cackled is stronger than laughed shrilly. Cried plaintively, try whimpered instead. Exhale slowly. Exhales the verb, slowly is the adverb, it's a weak phrase. Try sighed instead. Inhaled quickly. Try gasped. Shook slightly. Try shivered or trembled or trembled. Fell heavily instead of fell heavily, try slumped or collapsed. We should ask ourselves, can the action be described with one strong verb? rather than a weaker verb and an adverb. Remember Stephen King's great comment, adverbs are not your friend. It's been a wandering path, but we have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>